Hello, and thank you for joining the second season of Title Nerds, presented by the law firm of Riker Danzig. Each episode features one or more of Riker Danzig's thought leaders in the title insurance law space, discussing current legal trends and issues of significance. Please remember that nothing shared on today's podcast should be considered legal advice in any particular matter. Now let's welcome Michael O'Donnell, Riker Danzig's co-managing partner, and partner Bethany Abley to kick off our podcast. Hello, everyone. This is the third episode of Title Nerds for 2023. We have hopefully a great podcast for you all. We have surveyor Keith Ludwig, who I've worked with on the Boundary Line Commission, and I think will provide you some fascinating information and insight on surveyors and how they work in boundaries. My partner, Bethany Abley, will be leading the interview there. And then afterwards, I get to talk to our newest member of our title team, Corey Pruitt, about a fascinating case she found dealing with Airbnbs. So with that, Bethany, take it away. Thanks so much, Mike. Hello, Title Nerds. We are glad to be presenting this third episode of Title Nerds for you. And as Mike said, we've got Keith Ludwig, who's a surveyor with us today as our special guest. Hello, Keith. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Bethany. Thanks for having me. So Keith, the first thing we want you to tell our listeners is just a little bit about yourself and what you do as a surveyor and your experience. Sure. So I've been in the profession of surveying for 42 years. Hopefully I don't look it, but I have been. Definitely not. The listeners Uh, at home might not be able to see you, but I can. And you definitely don't look like you've been in it for 42 years. Good thing. Good thing. So my father was a professional land surveyor. Uh, That's how I got into the business. My grandfather was a land surveyor and engineer working on the railroads in Philadelphia. So that's pretty much where I got my start. I am professionally licensed in New Jersey and seven other states. I'm a graduate of NJIT with a bachelor's in surveying. I serve as an adjunct professor to Rowan University, teaching surveying to the engineering staff. Currently, I am the Northeast Region Survey Manager for Pannoni, meaning I manage all the survey offices all the survey divisions, I should say, within New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. I lend support to Pennsylvania and Delaware as well. Oh, wow. That's great. I will say, Keith, when you mentioned where you got your start and your father was in the business and that's how you got in the business, I always say that to people when they ask how I became a Jets fan. I say, my father's a Jets fan, and that's how I became a Jets fan. (laughs) Let alone the fact that my father was an attorney and was in the title insurance industry for many years. I don't blame him for me going into law or title insurance. I blame him for me being a Jets fan. (laughs) (laughs) So since we're on our Title Nerds podcast, one of the things we wanted to ask you about, Keith, is how title searches and title reports are used in the surveyor's world. So when you are preparing a survey, How does that work that you're using the title searches? Well, title searches are extremely important to land surveyors. I got to say, there's numerous types of surveys that we prepare. One of the most prevalent one that's known by everybody is the ALTA survey, the ALTA, where title reports are actually required and they are completely relied upon by the surveyor. So any information that we're provided from the title companies, whether it be Title A, so I should say Schedule A, especially Schedule B-2, which are easements, restrictions, and covenants, they are extremely important. We will take that information, we'll plot the deeds that are provided, and then we will relate them to the boundary that we're surveying. Our primary function from the title search is to relate any easements, restrictions, covenants, and whether they lie within the surveyed area 
adjacent to the surveyed area or they're not contained within the survey area. One big misconception that I get all the time from attorneys is they always ask me, does the easement or covenant affect the property in question? That is not the duty of a surveyor. That is not our job. I am not qualified to say whether an easement affects or does not affect a surveyed premises. That is strictly upon the attorney. I can tell them where it lies physically. I can tell them the characteristics. Some of them may be an air rights easement up to the 20 feet above the top of the building. Well, I can tell you that. Does that affect the property? That is not my determination to, to figure out. Now, other surveys that we do are boundary surveys where an ALTA is not required, but a title search routinely is requested. Again, we will take that information and lay it onto the ground and relate it to the boundary survey. Keith, can I ask you, when you're doing a boundary survey, mm -hmm. how far do you have to go back in the title history to have some assurance that you're right? Sure. So in the state of New Jersey, that is an unquantified timeframe, believe it or not. The law states that we are to gather any, and I hate this word, all information <laughs> necessary to render a determination up to the boundary. Now, for myself personally, I take that as I need you to go back to the mother deed, whether it be 60 years, 70 years, whether it be 150 years, that's immaterial to me. I need you to go back to the mother deed and then bring it forward so that I can see what's happened with this property over time. Now, one thing I think is really interesting, Keith, we were talking before we got on the recording about how you've seen streams as boundary lines. Yes. I thought that was fascinating conversation we were having <laughs> before we got on. Sure. So that's where the deeds are extremely important because you need to read them. A lot of them will recite to the top of bank. Many of them will recite to the center line of the stream, but it's to the center line of the stream as when the deed was written. Now, if minor changes have happened to that stream over time, that's completely acceptable. And the title will still follow the center line or the top of bank. There are times when certain governmental agencies, public agencies will come in and they will drastically change the center line or the, uh, the alignment of the stream or the creek. That does not change title. If a government agency comes in and decides they need to straighten this stream for e-commerce or navigation, that's fine, but the title still rests upon where the original location of the stream lied. I said I thought it was fascinating, and I do, and that's why I'm a, I'm a title nerd here, because I do find stuff like that fascinating. <laughs> mm -hmm. My guess is I'm not the only one that's listening. That yeah. I mean, that is that is fascinating that it doesn't change, because that's different from tidelands properties, right? Where it can change depending, on, depending how the tide yeah. flows, right? Correct. Absolutely. It's written right on the tax maps. You can see in West Effort and Paulsboro, the Mantua Creek was the dividing line between these two municipalities. For commerce, they straightened Mantua Creek, where it used to snake, literally snake back and forth. They created numerous subdivisions. And now parcels of West Effort are on one side of the Mantua Creek and on the other, and parcels of Paulsboro are on each side of the Mantua Creek because title did not change. 
Now, speaking of yeah. things changing or not changing over time, in your view, how has surveying changed over your 42 years? And I still don't believe it's 42 years it in, is, the, in the profession. There have been drastic changes in surveying in my time. My first job surveying with my father, I was a rear chainman on a four-man survey crew. You never wow. see a four-man, let alone a three-man survey crew anymore. <laughs> Once in a while, you'll see a two-man crew. Most of it is one man. So my job was to literally hold the zero end of the tape on the chaining pin and pick up the chaining pins as we traversed down the line. And once we finally got to the corner we were looking for, my job was to tell my father how many chaining pins I had, four pins, five pins, six pins, whatever it was. Each one of them represented 100 feet. And then the head chainman would tell him, we've gone 42.6 feet from there. So he would know if I had six pins, six, 42, 62 feet from the beginning of the line. Nowadays, that is done. And that traversing would take an hour, two hours, if it was wooded. Nowadays, you press a button on your data collector and you have that distance accurate to within one hundredth of a foot in a matter of five seconds. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huge changes. GPS revolutionized surveying. We can now get a position on the face of the earth within the size of about a quarter in two minutes. Wow. When I started surveying, that would have taken days, days to ascertain. Can I follow up on that, Keith? Because I'm it's interesting what you're saying is Bethy and I have had cases, I'm sure like you have, we've had to go back to like 1812, sometimes back to the board of proprietors. And a lot of them, the deeds reference the old live oak, which isn't there anymore. Nope. So how, how do you use the modern technology to find out where the old live oak is? So that's really interesting because you're talking deeds that were written in chains and links, right? Yes, absolutely. 66 foot chain, 100 links, each one was 66 inches long. And what a lot of people don't realize is when they would measure those distances, it was flat on the ground. It was not a horizontal distance. So if there was 10 feet of relief from the front to the back, it was a slope distance, chained slope distance not a horizontal distance. So you need to take that chain slope distance and relate it horizontally. So you would need to gather some topographic information, realize there's 10 foot of relief. You may have thousand foot distance, that's your slope distance. And you need to calculate your horizontal distance. In addition, when you're, when you're closing a chains and link deed, you have to realize the accuracy that they were surveying with. For them, five links was an incredibly accurate distance. But five links today is over three feet, yeah. which is horrendous. <laughs> horrendous, three and a half feet. That's unacceptable by today's modern standards. So when surveyors are closing chains and link deeds, one of the big mistakes they make is they convert it to feet and they calculate a closure. Like I said, they may see three and a half feet, which to them is horrible. Really, it's six links. 
And if that modern deed closed within six hundredths of a foot, our smallest unit of measurement right now, surveyor wouldn't even think twice. It's a big difference. And if you're talking deeds back in the 1800s, you're talking a compass bearing declination. So the bearings were done by the compass and it was magnetic and not true. Most surveyors today are using GPS and you're surveying on true north. So you may be looking for a bearing that is 13 degrees different from what was measured in the 1800s. And you need to know, you need to declinate that deed, that bearing back because on true north, it's a lot different. This is part of my specialty, researching and recreating ancient deeds and ancient surveys. It's an art and it's yeah. not every surveyor has that ability. As I said before, fascinating. <laughs> I think you've got all of us here really thinking. I can see all of the faces on our Zoom screen. I know the folks at home can't see it, but we're all sitting here amazed. So <laughs> thank you. Sure. sure. Really, as I said, about 10 times already fascinating to me. Keith, I can't let you go without asking you about boundary line commissions, because I know you recently served on a boundary line commission with Mike. Is that correct? I did, actually, for one in the state of New Jersey. Can't reveal where or for who, but yes, in the state of New Jersey. Yeah, we won't ask for any details, and we won't ask you for any gossip about how Mike was as a boundary line commissioner. <laughs> I wouldn't divulge it on him anyway. <laughs> if you could just tell everybody at home a little bit about boundary line commissions in New Jersey, how they work, and the work that boundary line commissioners do. Sure. Well, boundary line commissioners come into play when you have two surveyors that just do not agree flat out. They just, they cannot come to a common consensus on where a boundary line exists. They will then petition the courts for help. That's where the commissioners come in into play. So the plaintiff will determine, will actually appoint one commissioner. The defendant will appoint another commissioner, typically attorneys. And then between the two and both parties, a surveyor will be brought in to determine where the line is. So as the surveyor on the Boundary Line Commission, my job is to intake all the information completed by the plaintiff and defendant surveyor. I will then analyze all that information. And routinely, it requires a lot more research and a lot more boundary surveying, field surveying than what they did. The one that Mike and I just surveyed on it wound up turning into surveying the roadway for a little more than a quarter of a mile. Additional deed research, again, back to the mother deed, which went back over a hundred years, which neither surveyor did. And doing additional reconnaissance and finding more boundary evidence that was out there, which I will say in this case, both surveyors missed numerous pieces of evidence on not only their own properties, but the line in question, which exceeded their properties. So the line in question went beyond their title and neither one of them really researched it far enough back. So as a boundary line commissioner, it's our job to be objective and to take in the information and look at it from a nonpartisan view and then to filter that evidence along with all of the title work that you guys provide which was really important in this case, and then to determine whether one surveyor is correct or not, because that happens. A commissioner may side with the defendant survey is correct and the plaintiff survey is wrong or vice versa. 
in the case that you're talking about, neither one of them, I did not agree with either one of them and had to basically set the line in a position that was actually between the two lines, but supported by numerous pieces of evidence and title search, title research that was done. That's our job as a commissioner. The objective, find the line and determine whether it agrees with one or the other or neither. Bethany, can I ask one more question? And um, I don't think we should, uh, any surveyor in Jersey, particularly South Jersey, can you tell us how you deal with Tidelands issues, the ever-present issue of Tidelands in in the state of New Jersey? Yeah, so Tidelands, NJDEP made it really easy to be wrong, unfortunately. (laughs) So DEP put out many years ago some GIS-shaped files of digitized lines of the riparian boundaries all throughout New Jersey. Now, they're close. They are. They're close. But again, they're digitized. And if you read the metadata that they published, they clearly state that this is not a survey product and it is for planning pretty much only. So with riparian issues, you have to go back to the riparian board and they have coordinates. They're on 1927 datum, but they have the actual coordinates of the riparian lands that were now were formally flowed in the state of New Jersey. As a surveyor, it's our job to go to them, ascertain those coordinates, then convert them to modern day NAD 23, uh, I should say NAD 83, 2011 datum, which is fairly simple because the National Geodetic Survey provides tools to do that. You can just input the coordinates in the 27 datum. The National Geodetic Survey will then give you coordinates on NAD 83, 2011, You need to plot them on that survey, connect the dots, and then you're in the right location. Using the GIS shape files will get you close, but it will not be accurate. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Keith, one last question before we let you go. Sure. Do you have any favorite war stories or any crazy (laughs) surveying experience that you want to share with us? Sure. So I was the surveyor for the, it was the defendant the defendant in a case in Atlantic County. This case was just absolutely hellacious. The title went back and forth between the same families numerous times. The title went back over 200 years. We had to get the proprietor's information and then start to bring everything forward the title company that I got to help us out with it, I'm not going to name who it was, was tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. Not only because the case was in Atlantic County, a lot of people don't realize that Atlantic County only came into existence in 1837. Prior to that, it was Gloucester County. And for about 15, 20 years after 1837, people still filed Atlantic County deeds in Gloucester County, because it was closer. You gotta remember back then, you were traveling by horseback. There was no cars. So the closest courthouse was still Woodbury instead of Mays Landing. This involved probate because there were numerous wills within the families that went back and forth. So the title company had to search both courthouses back to long before 1837, they were back in the 1780s. And they had to search probate in both courthouses. 
for the names. The title work was just, it, it was absolutely a mess trying to decipher it. Probably took me three months straight to decipher how the properties were deeded and willed back and forth. And some were deeded after the wills. So the father or grandfather willed it to his two sons and daughter. And then later on, a deed was produced that was contrary to the will. The will supersedes the deed. It was filed before, and it was the last will and testament. It was just, it was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. It took almost seven months to get that survey completed. Sounds like it would have been a nightmare, even if you didn't have the issue of the two different counties and one county changing to the other county and having Correct. just two courthouses. Even without that, it sounds like it would have been a crazy nightmare. It, it was, it was absolutely. I had over 400 deeds and wills to go through on that survey. Wow. wow. Yeah. I knew if I asked you for a good war story, you'd have one. <laughs> that was by far the worst. That was by far the worst. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Keith. Thank you, Keith. It's been great. No problem. My pleasure. All right. With that, let me introduce the newest member of our title team, Corey Pruitt, who went through a trial with Bethany and I, and we certainly can say she was spectacular at the trial. Now we'll see how she is on title nerds. I'm um, more nervous now. <laughs> uh, she's going to discuss an, an interesting case out of New York. Warren County, New York, West Mountain Assets v. Dobowski. And she may mention some noxious, dangerous, offensive, or unruly, noisy activity of any nature. But with that, Corey, tell us about the case. Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on this fabulous podcast and for letting me be part of the team. So basically what's going on here is there's plaintiff and defendants. And as Mike mentioned, the plaintiff is West Mountain Assets, LLC. And the defendants are a married couple. James and Jennifer Dubkowski, as I'm sure I'm not doing a great job of saying that, so I'll just call them defendants from here on out. So essentially what it is, is these two folks are the entity and the husband and wife, they own neighboring parcels, and there is, they both abut a third parcel, which has on it, in part, a gravel roadway. And plaintiffs, the West Mountain Assets, initially brought this claim because they were alleging that the defendants were impacting their use of the roadway. And the catch of this whole case is that the plaintiffs were using their other home as essentially an Airbnb or a VBO or any of the other millions of different programs or things that are existing now where you can rent out your home to other people. So that's how they were using it. And so they were saying that the defendants were impacting their people that were coming to visit and stay in their home, impacting their use of that roadway. The defendants, in turn, brought counterclaims against the plaintiff, saying, you are using your parcel or your home improperly in accordance with the deed restrictions that run with the land that we both agree to and buying these parcels of land in this subdivision. So essentially what this case is, is summary judgment on two of the counterclaims that defendants brought. And it has nothing to do with the other pieces that the plaintiff initially did. It's just focusing on the two claims, two of the three claims that the defendants brought in the counterclaim. One was for the use of the plaintiff's property as essentially an Airbnb. And then the second was an adverse possession claim that the defendants brought because they had a driveway that was shaped like a horseshoe. 
they kind of went out and jetted into the third parcel that they shared with the gravel roadway and it extended or spilled out over to it. And so they were saying, we have now adversely possessed this piece of land that is extended onto it. So that was their third counterclaim, which was also part of, or the second counterclaim, excuse me, that was part of this summary judgment motion. Why don't you tell us what the restriction was that caused so much consternation? Absolutely. So the restrictions that were part of the deed and that ran with the land, there was three, three that were specifically targeted in this case. So the properties had to be used for single family residence purposes only, or residential purposes. They could not be used for commercial activity. And the third part is that they could not be used for any noxious, dangerous, offensive, or unduly noisy activity of any nature. So not sure what falls into that, but it could be anything really. So those are the three things that the court really turned and looked to with the deed saying, okay, this is what defendants are saying the property is being improperly used for. We now have to examine these restrictions that are in the deed to see if the way plaintiff is using their property for short-term rentals violates that. So people could stay or were staying at the plaintiff's property from anywhere from a weekend to a week or two weeks. So thinking essentially of your Airbnb stays, we're kind of like, how I'm going to go stay in an Airbnb this weekend in Nashville, where I'm going with a group of people. We're staying in someone's home for a weekend. So that's essentially how they were using this property. And so the court was tasked with determining whether or not this use violated the restrictions. And what did the court say? The court said, yes, it violated. And I thought it was actually really interesting how the parties approached their arguments. So plaintiff was essentially saying that it does not violate it because the, as we all probably maybe potentially learned in property law or throughout time, that you have the right to do what you want with your property, that you can use it how you would like. And they are saying, this is essentially what we're doing. And they pointed to a case in Wisconsin which held that the use in essentially the same way with an Airbnb was not commercially used and they were allowed to continue with that. The court rejected that argument from the plaintiff and they said, we're not looking at non-commercial use. Here, the real thing that we're looking at is what defines a single family residence. And that is where the court really turned to to decide how they wanted to define that term. So then the defendants thinking of that decided that they should try to argue that residency was the real term that the court should be deciding. And they said, well, when you become a resident, you can get a driver's license or apply for government benefits. And the court again rejected that. And they said, we're not going to determine whether or not someone's a resident that has a completely separate legal analysis. Here, we're looking at the use of the property. So the interesting thing is the court said that there was a dearth, which is one of my favorite words of all time, that there was a dearth of legal authority on single family residential use. Um, but they did find one particular case. It is White Plains v. Ferrioli. And in that case, the context of the favor of looking at that was the term, again, single family use, but it was in a restrictive covenant deed and it was a restrictive zoning ordinance. So the court in White Plains was trying to interpret the same term as the court is here, but in the context of a restrictive zoning ordinance. But there the court determined that, let me see specifically the quote, so that single family use is one that bears the generic character of a family unit as a relatively permanent household. The court went on to say that transient living falls outside the scope of single family residential use. So the court here in our case took that same exact definition and applied it right here and said the fact that people are coming and going, staying for a weekend or two weeks, 
that is not, that is transient and that falls outside of single family residential. So even if I'm on vacation with my mom and my dad and we are single family and we're trying to use this house as a single family, that's going to fall outside of it because it's not being used as more of a permanent structure and it's transient. So the court flatly rejected it and said that they could not use the property as they were as for the plaintiffs. Yeah, I found that sort of fascinating because there was that dearth of case law except for the one Wisconsin case that went the opposite way. And the court turned around and said, no, this is how I'm going to rule. Now, there was a second phase, the the adverse possession of, of the, I think, the lane. Can you just tell us how that turned out? Yeah, absolutely. So the court ultimately, I'll start at the end and I'll work my way back. So they ultimately dismissed their adverse possession claim. They said they lost on summary judgment and they would have no grounds to even move forward. So they took it upon themselves to say, you're done, that claim is done. And so what it was is the defendants, again, as I mentioned earlier, were making a claim that they adversely possessed a piece of that third parcel, the roadway. And plaintiffs, and in order to do that, because they shared it as co-tenants in common, they would have to show an explicit or an implied ouster because under the law, when you share it as co-tenants in common, the idea is that you're doing it for the benefit of each other. So you'd have to show that there was an ouster. And here was actually a really interesting evidence issue because the defendants relied on the plaintiff's predecessor in interest. He's the person who owned the property before the plaintiff submitted a certification saying that in the whole time that I own this property, the folks that were owned the property before the defendants had used the property in the same exact way. It had not changed. They had always had their driveway that way and it had been the same. So for an implied ouster, you need 10 years of continuous adverse possession of it. But the court said you cannot rely to speak to the state of mind of another person's certification. So essentially what it boiled down to is the plaintiff's predecessor and interest could not speak to the defendant's predecessor and interest state of mind. So the court said, even though we have this information, we cannot factually with the evidence make a determination as to the state of mind as the person who owned the property before you defendants so you, you lose on the adverse possession claim because you can't rack up to 10 years. Thank you, Corey. That was great. And it was, a, I thought, a very interesting case. And with that, that wraps up episode three. Unless, Bethany or Corey, you have anything else you'd like to add? I'm just going to tell Corey she was as spectacular on this podcast as she was at trial. I know she said she was more nervous about the podcast than trial. But <laughs> I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm back in law school. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to fail. <laughs> well you did a fantastic job thank you <laughs> so thank you Corey for being here thank you Keith for being here and thank you all of our title nerds at home that are listening thank you all thank you thank you thank you for listening today to title nerds presented by Riker Danzig if you like this show please remember to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred podcast app and be sure to rate us five stars. You may also wish to subscribe to our blog and visit our website at riker.com. We hope you will join us again for another episode of Title Nerds.